Well, it's a real joy and honor to meet with you in this place this evening as we contemplate the fact, as the song says, that a baby will come. And of course, the song says, the baby has come. Simply stated, it's the key component of the biblical message of redemption. Old Testament, the baby will come. New Testament, the baby has come. I I wanted to ask you at the outset, when was the last time you thought deeply about that? And simply just didn't take it for granted as doctrine and dogma. When was the last time you contemplated the fact that I am is in a manger in a nowhere place called Bethlehem. When was the last time you allowed that to stir your emotions? This is awesome. This is awesome. It's unspeakably awesome that Creator God, I am Creator God, is in a manger. In Bethlehem. Um, it's an astonishing and amazing thing. And as I thought about it myself this week, I was asking myself, well, how long has this been on God's mind? <laughs> how, long, how long has God been conspiring within the Trinity to do this thing? You know, when I went off to seminary, one of my closest friends said, you know, that's where you go to learn the answers to all the questions no one ever asks. And to some degree that's true, because none of you have ever asked me if I'm supralapsarian or if I'm sublapsarian. None of you have ever asked me this. Have you ever been asked if you're supralapsarian or sublapsarian? How many are a supralapsarian? Yeah, what does it mean, actually? <laughs> I'm going to tell you in a minute, man. Good question, though, Martin. Uh, how many of you are sublapsarian? You know, so my friend is right. I mean, you go to seminary and you learn a lot of things that no one ever asks you, right? Um, although seminary is always fun. I, I recommend it to everyone. It's just fun to go. Of course, you've got to go to a good seminary. There are bad seminaries. You don't want to go to a bad seminary. You want to go to a seminary who, who actually believes in this and teaches this. Of course, you have to be a seminary graduate to even know that these are real words, right? No, nobody in this room has ever heard of these words. I like to, I've never had the occasion to say these words in public to any human being. And I'm really happy to have this occasion. I just wanted to say supralapsarian and sublapsarian. Um, yeah, nobody knows what that means. I'm not even sure what it means. But I know these words. And uh, yeah, so that's impressive. I, do you realize how much free stuff I give you when you come in here? I mean, I give you this stuff. You, you can't just walk into any church in the world and get this kind of stuff, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you guys don't look impressed. You should be impressed. I mean, this is all free. 
you know, most people have to sit through three years of seminary to get this stuff. Supralapsarian or sublapsarian. Okay, I won't hold you in suspense anymore. My answer is I'm neither. I am neither. Believe it or not, great theologians have argued this. So what am I talking about? The principal question here regarding these extremely strange words is, in what order were the eternal decrees of God with respect to creation, the fall, redemption, and judgment? So you got that? This is the argument. This is the debate. What is the order of eternal decrees or sequence or succession of the eternal decrees of God regarding creation, the fall, redemption, and judgment. And I'm just offended by the whole debate simply because I don't think God thinks sequentially. I don't think omniscient mind, infinite mind, eternal mind, I don't think He thinks like we think. I don't think He reasons like we reason. In fact, I, I have the strong suspicion that infinite mind thinks all things simultaneously, right? I don't think there is a succession or sequence to his thoughts. So I, I um, yeah, I just refrain from getting involved in that argument. To me, to try, this, this seems quite presumptuous to me, to, to try to say we can understand the eternal counsels and decrees of God and we can put them in the proper order. It's like trying, as I often say to you, it's like trying to explain the Trinity. God just reveals some things He never explains. This is what God does. And you know what He expects His people to do when He reveals things that He doesn't explain? You know what He expects you to do? He expects you to worship Him. When you don't understand Him, the default position for the true believer is simply worship. I worship this awesome God. I have no hope of ever understanding and that's part of the romance of knowing Him. I'll never fully grasp all that He is, all that He thinks. He's an infinite being. I'll spend a billion eternities trying to plumb the depths of infinite mind. It's part of the romance to me. Some of you don't think of God like this. But you know what? I was talking to my wife the last few days and I realized, you know, you know, we still got some good romance going on. And a lot of it is spirit and mind. And, and young people, this is what you need to be looking for, right? If you're not married yet and you, you're interested in getting married. Spirit and mind. Spirit and mind. This is the deepest romance with God forever. So I don't try to parse the eternal decrees of God. One old Puritan said it perfectly. A comprehended God, someone tell me, I've used this quote quite a few times, a comprehended God is what? No God. A comprehended God is no God. If you can parse God, you have no God. If you can fully understand God, you are worshiping some false God, some caricature of God, I'm really okay that I can't understand all that He is and all that He's done. We can understand the essentials. The essentials are clear to us here. But again, there are some things that God has revealed and not explained. So how long has God been planning to send this baby? 
How long has God been planning to love His people in this most astonishing and unexpected way? But the easy answer is as long as God has been God. God has no contingency plans. <laughs> you know, He has no backup plans. He doesn't need a backup plan, right? So as long as God's been God, He knew He would lay in that manger. He knew He was going to go to the cross. Why? Because you need Him there and I need Him there because you're a sinner. What did Jesus say? I've come to seek and save what? The righteous people. No! Because there are no righteous people apart from the work of Jesus Christ. I've come to seek and save sinners. That's you! And me! We're sinners. We need a Savior. Listen, we need Jesus to be in that manger. We need God to be in the manger. We need Him desperately to be in the manger. So how long has God loved us this way? I thought of two passages that came to my mind. The first one is John 1, 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. Um, many of you will be familiar with this famous text. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now John, here in these passages, he's taking us back past uh, Genesis 1.1. We are in eternity past. In, in uh, John 1, 1 and 2, one of my favorite preachers and theologians, uh, John MacArthur in the States, he says it like this in trying to explain John 1, 1 and 2. This is in the beginning of the beginnings which never began. Okay? You got that? That's how long God has planned to come uh, and save His people through the finished work of His Son. This started in the beginning of the beginnings which never began. I love that. I know your mind doesn't work like that. I know that your time-constrained mind, I know you can't even begin to contemplate an eternity past, but... The, the Bible is clear. I am. I am. God says, I am. He has always been. He was never begun. He's the great uncreated. He just is. He just is. He's just God. He's just there. I know it's hard for you to... Well, I know it's impossible for you to wrap your mind around that. But this God who just is, He's in the manger. He's in the manger. The other verse that came to my mind as I thought about how long God has been planning to redeem me with the shed blood of His Son. Ephesians 1, 3-6. Let me just read it to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He, the Father, chose us in Him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. How long has God been planning the incarnation? <laughs> as long as God has been God. That's how long God has loved us and plan to come and get us, which is exactly what He has done. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. 
But I know this, if you really believe this, you have been changed. If you really believe it. And we understand what the Bible means by the word believe. It's not mental assent. You don't have to have... You don't have to go to seminary to just superficially read your Bible and you realize that to believe is not mental assent. I don't just give mental assent to facts. We understand that that's not what the Bible's talking about. To believe, uh, when, when the word believe is used in the Bible, it's to, to believe in such a way that everything changes. Everything changes. Not immediately, but we're on that glide path. Everything is starting to change. My heart has been changed. My affections are changed. I am now in love with Jesus. I am now giving myself away to Jesus. Whatever that looks like, I don't care what it looks like. I'm going to follow the Lord. It, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it costs. Yeah, just read the Bible. <laughs> read all that Paul endured simply because he loved the Lord so someone tell me, some of you Bible scholars, what is the first biblical revelation that the baby would come? Anybody know? The first biblical inference to the baby who would come. Well, you guys know the story. Um, Adam and Eve, God put Adam and Eve, the perfect man, the perfect woman, in the perfect paradise. Um, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for them. Everything north, south, east, and west of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was theirs, but they wanted more. The Scripture makes it clear, and I'm just going to go ahead and say this, not just Adam and Eve, but you and me. The Bible makes it clear, the doctrine of original sin, that we are in Adam and Eve. We are in the loins of Adam and Eve. We fell with Adam and Eve. And I know this is mysterious and enigmatic to some, but it's the clear teaching of, of the Bible. It's also the clear experience of every human being. Every honest human being will admit that they are a sinner. Every honest human being. You know how we know that all of mankind fell in the garden? You know how we know? Apart from the fact that God has explicitly told us, that's the most important reason. But what are the wages of sin? I haven't met the guy or the girl that hasn't died. I haven't met them. The wages of sin is death. Every human being will die. We fell. We fell in Adam. And we have fallen by choice. Even if you have a problem with the, the doctrine of original sin, you have fallen by choice. You can't look in the mirror and, and, and know or confess that you are righteous, perfectly righteous before God, that you have the righteousness of God, that you are in right standing before God apart from a Savior. So we understand this doctrine. Because when you choose by choice, you are thereby agreeing with Adam and Eve in their rebellion. And if you haven't sinned by choice, you can come talk to me after the service. I'd like to know you. So, Adam and Eve decide against God. They decide against God. Adam and Eve and you and I. We have believed Satan's lie. 
We wanted more than perfection in paradise. We wanted to be like God. And we rebelled against this good God and His Word. And what happened next? They were naked. Naked before God in sin. Naked without God in rebellion. And they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Genesis 3.8. And what did Adam and Eve and you and I do? What did they do? What did we do? They hid. They hid from the Lord, as I often remind you, fallen men never seek God. Sinful men never seek God. It's what the Bible clearly teaches. There's only one seeker in the Bible. His name is Jehovah God. Men never seek God. And false religion and pseudo-Christianity is no, is no effort to seek God. In fact, it's, a, it's an effort to run from the true God. False religion and pseudo-Christianity, meaning false Christianity, is no attempt to find God. It's an attempt to escape Him. You know, I heard one theologian say one time, most people in the professing modern church, when they discover all that the Bible truly says, they don't like God at all. They don't like that God. Right? I don't like this God. That's why you have so many false churches because they take out the hard stuff. They, they, they edit the hard stuff. They only talk about the stuff that people want to hear. Right? So I'll ask you right now. Are you in love with the biblical God or are you in love with a caricature? of the biblical God? It's an important question for each of us, I think. And the Lord called to the man, Genesis 3.9, where are you? God came looking for Adam and Eve and you and me. Genesis 3.11-15, And the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There it is, right there. That's the first allusion to the fact that a baby will come. Genesis 3, 11, 15. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, the baby who will come, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The heel. Immediately as mankind falls in rebellion against God, God comes. The seeking God comes and He promises that the baby will come. This is a beautiful thing from Scripture. There's a second allusion to the baby in Genesis 3.21. It's the foreshadowing of the work that the baby will do when He comes. Genesis 3.21 And the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. How is this an allusion to Jesus? It's simply an allusion to His work of atonement. Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. And of course, God must shed blood to make garments of skin for Adam and Eve. Yeah, this is beautiful theology. Powerful theology. As soon as man rebelled, God shows up 
<laughs> God shows up with a promise. A promise of redemption. This is how awesome He is. He simply should have judged Adam and Eve. He simply should have judged you. You do not deserve grace. You don't deserve grace. Nobody deserves grace. Grace is always a gift. And God comes and promises that a baby will come. These are the first biblical references to the coming of the Lord. While I've never personally verified it, when I was in seminary, I heard an eminent biblical scholar say that Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies in the New Testament. Obviously, we don't have time to look at all of those tonight. I just want to look at a couple, okay? Some of these you're familiar with. Some of these, these revelations that God says, I, I'm, sending, I'm sending my redemption through my Son. Isaiah 7.14 The Lord is promising a sign to King Ahaz of Judah 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And the text says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. We sang it in the music tonight. And as in the case of many Old Testament prophecies, there's a near-term fulfillment in the in the birth of Isaiah's son, and there is a long-term fulfillment in the birth of Mary's son. Yes, while critics and skeptics like to claim that this passage is merely referencing an unmarried, chaste maiden who would become Isaiah's wife, we acknowledge that. But we also, because we're biblically literate, understand that there is another fulfillment regarding another virgin and another baby. How do we know this? Because the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to put it in his Gospel. Matthew 1, 23, the very same prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah 7, 14, as applied to Jesus, mentioned in Matthew 1, 23. It was Mary's question to the angel Gabriel regarding divine and uh, miraculous news that she would conceive and bear a son. She said, how can this be? What? I am a virgin. How could this be? It's her question to Gabriel. I am a virgin. And Gabriel responded, Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of of God. <laughs> There's that text there where it says, God does whatever He pleases in effect. It says it's impossible, but God will do it. You know, we'll talk about it next week. God creates life in you where there was only death, right? This is, no, this is nothing for God. You were once dead. Your heart was dead. Your soul was dead. But now you're alive. Those of you who are Christians in here tonight, you're alive. You're spiritually alive. That was a miracle of God. All things are possible with Jehovah God. Isaiah 7.14 also tells us that this baby shall be called Emmanuel. And Matthew 1.23 tells us this means what? You tell me. I know you know this. God's with us. 
God is with us. God says a baby will come. And when this baby has come, God will be with us. God has entered in to the sorrow which is the human race. God has entered in. This, this God who is completely other, that is uncreated, that transcends time and matter and eternity, this God enters into creation through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's, I know why unbelieving men hate this. It's because... <laughs> It just makes him all the more lovable. Who is a God like our God who takes on flesh? Who is a God like our God? Another prophecy in the, regarding uh, the baby that was revealed in the Old Testament. Many of you are familiar with this. Isaiah 9.6 For a child will be born to us a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This will be no ordinary child. He is a wonderful counselor, meaning in part that his wisdom is supernatural. It's extraordinary. It's astounding. It's miraculous. It excites wonder. The baby will be called Mighty God, meaning that He is strong, He is valiant, He is brave, He is immense in power. And He is Yahweh. It's what the text means. This is Yahweh. This is not some prophet as Islam claims. This is Yahweh. It is God in the flesh. This baby will be called Eternal Father, meaning in part that He is everlasting, ceaseless, unbegun, uncreated, unending. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Father, the Father, the progenitor, the protector and defender of His people. This baby will be called the Prince of Peace, meaning that He is the Captain and the Chief and the Ruler and the Governor of Peace, meaning completeness and safety and welfare and contentment. Praise God, Emmanuel is with His people. Emmanuel has come. One more prophecy I want to share with you from the Old Testament. Many of you will know this prophecy. It's part of the Advent story in, in, in the New Testament. It's how the priest knew where to tell Herod to go find him. Remember, Herod inquired of the priests, where is the Messiah to be born? They knew exactly. Micah 5.2 Again, 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus but as for you, Bethlehem, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So the Old Testament proclaims that a baby will come. He is the seed of the woman who will crush Satan. He is the virgin-born son called Emmanuel. He is the child given to us called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He is the One who is from long ago, from the days of eternity. 
Again, there are many other allusions and references to the coming of the baby in the Old Testament. We simply don't have time to look at those, but I wanted you to understand that this coming of Jesus was not a contingency plan uh, that God had to come up with in a crisis. As long as God's been God, He's been planning to redeem a people for His glory. And I want you to understand the cross is about the glory of Jesus. It's not about you. I know that the Gospel is presented in most ways that it's all about you. It's all about you. Listen, it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ glorifying His Father. Go read John 17. And that the Father would glorify the Son. And as they are glorified in the redemption of a people for His name. As Ephesians 1 said, as I read to you earlier, for the glory of His grace. This is all about God and His glory. And you and I are pulled up into it. And if, we, if we're biblically knowledgeable, we, we understand that His glory is my joy. His glory is my joy. My glory is not my joy. Some of you have lived long enough to understand and live this. You know, praise God, it's not all about me. Praise God. I am, I am, I'm, I'm a finite being. I'm pathetic in so many ways. I mean, if it were about me, I'd just be bored to death. I tell you this a lot. But it's about Him. It's about His glory. It's all about Jesus. The cross is not man-centered. The cross is God-centered. It's about the glory of God. And it's about the joy of His people as He redeems them from every nation, tongue, and tribe. It's why I preach the Gospel. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's amazing stuff. As long as God's been God, He's loved His people. And He's purposed to come and save them. I'm going to ask you again, do you believe this? You say, yes, Jim, I, I believe it intellectually. I believe it mentally. What I want to say to you is you haven't believed it unless it's changed your life. You haven't believed it. You haven't really believed it. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, I do not know who you are. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know what the lawlessness of the, the men are in Matthew 7? They believe they could play religion with Christ and get away with it. I can just do some church when it's convenient, right? So the Old Testament foretells that the baby is coming. The New Testament proclaims that He has come. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and every book of the New Testament, whether explicitly or implicitly, the baby has come. God is in a manger. I am El Shaddai. Elohim Adonai is in a manger. If you think about it for more than 120 seconds, you will be stunned you will be staggered and you will be forced to worship. God loves me like this! How can that not change your life? Of course, this is the presupposition of all the New Testament. It will change your life! It will change 
your life. I have to give you this quote every Christmas. Charles Spurgeon. I love this quote. I've always loved this quote. I had to tinker with it just a little bit, but I give him credit. Um, the Incarnation. I spent one whole summer with a group of guys. We sat around some brilliant professor and we talked and we studied the Incarnation, right? The Incarnation. God becoming flesh, right? And, and, and we studied what all the great theologians said and all the great theologians affirm it, but nobody can understand it or parse it. How do you parse the God-man? You can't parse the God-man. It's just another miracle of God, the God-man. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and there are, there are apostasies on both sides of the, the... There are ditches on both sides of that truth. We know them from church history. Charles Spurgeon said this, Infinite yet infant, eternal yet born, almighty yet suckled, upholding a universe yet laying in a manger. How can you not love that? Don't ever forget that. Infinite yet infant, eternal yet born, almighty yet suckled, upholding a universe yet laying in a manger. A baby has come. His name is Jesus. He is a Savior. He is the Christ. He is Lord. J.I. Packer says it. Well-known theologian. And this is true. He says, the more you think about it, the more awesome it is. <laughs> right? That's why I'm challenging you. You know, December 25th is kind of a, it's just a date that has nothing really to do with the biblical record. Most likely Jesus was born in the spring um, because the shepherds were out in the fields. Uh, December 25th, it's just a, uh, there are other issues with that. But it is culturally the season and the church can certainly legitimately remember what has happened and worship, and give praise. So Jesus has come. I'm just going to read Philippians 2, 5-8 through real quick. Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The baby came to be crucified. There was never any question about this. This is what God purposed. Read the Gospels. Jesus didn't end up on the cross by mistake. He didn't get in a corner and... You know, be overpowered. This is why He came. He said, I came for this reason. To save my people. That's why He came. Listen, don't let Christmas be some small, cultural, superficial experience this year. I am going to challenge you to worship Jesus Christ like you have never worshipped Him before. Remember who He is. Remember He's in that manger because He loves you. And He's going to the cross. I'm going to turn real quick to Ephesians chapter 2. I always turn to Ephesians chapter 2 at Christmas. People say, well, this is not a, a Christmas text. Wrong! It is a Christmas text! Ephesians 2, real quick. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is a sobering indictment on the... the the reality for natural man. We are, verse 1, dead in our sins. We are, verse 2, captive to the prince of the power of the air, meaning Satan. Verse 3, we are by nature children of wrath, simply meaning we are hell-bound. But what does verse 4, how does, what are the first two words in verse 4? What do they say? What does your text say? But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Ephesians 2.1, we were dead, but a baby's come. Ephesians 2.2, we were slaves and captives to sin, but a baby has come. Ephesians 2.3, we were children of wrath, hell-bound, but a baby has come. In eternity past, God decreed that His Son would come. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly promised that this would happen. In the New Testament, God's eternal decree and Old Testament promise has come to fruition. Emmanuel is with us. I'm going to quickly turn and Take another look at that passage that Martin read for us. I'm back in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I just want to read it again because I want you to understand this is a real day in history. This is a real Caesar. He issued a real decree. It's a real census. It required a real man and a real woman to travel to the real city of, of Bethlehem. This real couple was expecting a real baby and they couldn't find a real room. So this real mother and real father had to lay this real baby in a real manger. And then a real angel announced this real birth to some real shepherds who were watching over their real flocks in some real fields. This is history. And I know most of the world, they don't believe you when you talk about Jesus. I get it. I get it. But you still talk about Jesus, right? This is history. This is God-written history. I'm going to read it to you and we're done. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Zerinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house of the family of David, in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him 
and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone round them and they were terrified. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you believe that this is history, if you really believe it, your life is changed. Your life is changed by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. A real baby has come. He's a real Savior. He's a real Messiah. He is a real God. I pray that you worship this Christmas maybe like you never have. I exhort you to think deeply about this truth. I exhort you to let this truth inform every single aspect of your life. This God has loved me like this. Beautiful. Beautiful theology. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table tonight. We, uh, we have open communion here, so all who have made a public profession of faith in Jesus and have followed Him in believer's baptism, you are welcome to partake of the table. Uh, as you see, our esteemed musicians are taking the stage. Um, we always bring the A-team up for communion. They'll play a song, um, four or five minutes long. While that's going on, prepare your heart. Uh, to come to the table. Uh, when you're ready, come up, take the bread, take the cup, go back to your seat. When the music ends, I'll stand and read a text and then we will partake.